0: Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker
1: meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name's Larry T. and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Larry! That's, uh, that's pretty catchy how you guys do that. I yeah. um, <laughs> Me and Rosie, we, we went to a bakery today, and we walked in there, and the ladies, you know, she says, Hi, my name's Paula. Can I get you a croissant? And oh. We stepped back and said, Hi, Paula. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: <laughs>
1: I tell you, I, 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 have been, uh, I have been cold ever since I got here.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, my cheeks are tight. I mean, uh <laughs> Not those cheeks. As, uh, <laughs> my God! And I haven't even been close to a jelly bean, you know.
0: <laughs>
1: anyway, I um, I'm hurting. I, uh, I I've been to Fairbanks, but it ain't nothing like Anchorage. I mean, uh, I. I You guys, I couldn't pick a better bunch of people to be with, and I am so glad my social worker let me come over here. Uh, And uh, if you're new, don't leave too fast. We're giving away cheese at the end of the meeting. Uh, But uh, there was nothing like getting off that plane and, and seeing, you know, it seemed like a hundred people greeting us, but there were six. <laughs> uh, I told my mom there was a hundred, though. And, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, I mean, and the first thing uh, Andrew told me was, you know, don't get too excited. They're for dick.
0: <laughs>
1: Andrew, uh, little rat bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I'm attracted to rat bastards. I mean, those those are the kind of guys that I mix with. You know what I mean? And uh, but uh, I really needed that meeting this afternoon about emotional sobriety because I'm nowhere near it. I uh, you know uh, I had the time of my Susan. Thank you for letting us stay at your house. It, that was incredible. You know, just a beautiful house. We had beautiful breakfast, and then uh, me and Rosie uh, were took on a little plane with uh, Brad and Red Dog. Now, we were, in the, you know. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know if we were going to go on a tour or they're going to drop us off over, the, you know. But we were in the back there and we couldn't see shit because these guys are huge, you know. You
0: know
1: You know I was just hoping just for them to part their heads a little bit and, You know and but we haven't we haven't even got off the ground and we're on ice. You know, we're standing on ice and the shit's starting to crack and I'm going, I'm going down, man, I'm going down here, you know. And so we get into this little crop duster, I mean, you know, and, and we're back there and and Brad can't close the door. <laughs> Bam! I mean, it's like 20 times. Bam! i like, oh, shit. You know, I mean, you know. And then, uh, and then he leans over to the back of us and he goes, make sure your seatbelts are on. <laughs> Red. And then Red Dog, being the, you know, the Steve Canyon of the, of Anchorage, he turns around to Rosie, hands her the seatbelt, and says, Here you go, here's your seatbelt. Uh, you better put that on. You know what I mean? So we're riding around, and, you know, and, and I'm seeing stuff. I mean, they say there's seven wonders of the world, but they haven't seen Anchorage. I swear to God. I seen stuff that I thought i seen on acid. I mean, they. <laughs> I mean, we seen glaciers and snow. I mean, so much snow, it was just God. You know, there's got to be a cliff around here somewhere. You know, and then and then I started to cry and Rosie started to cry and these two guys are laughing and pointing back at us like that. You know, and because I look down there, Brad turns around and says, "Hey, there's two moose down there." You know, and you know, Red Dog. You know, he's, got, you know, he's got to get a he's got to get a close eye. You know? I'll bring him down to you, you know, you know. And I've never seen any moose eye to eye, you know what I mean? I've had my share of beaver, but never... No, you know. But uh, Not that kind of beaver. I'm talking real beaver, you know. Well, anyway, we finally landed. I, I swear to God, I have—I mean, this guy can fly. We're—we're we're in the snow, and then he comes off the mountain, and then we're in this valley, you know, and then he drops down like he's a dive bomber. Here we go, and you go. We start circling the lake, and we land. And I swear to God, man, I have never—it's the best time of my life, dude. You know, and then he showed me his chopper, and I loved it. I said, man, this is—this is great. This is fantastic, man. You know. And, uh, and I just, I'm not, I'm not here to tell any new guy that because I'm from LA, my group's better or, or none of that crap. Because when I leave here Sunday, I'm going to be so glad that Red Dog's staying.
0: <laughs>
1: and, and I have a real pilot, you know, and I could, I could see out the windows and shit, you know, but. But I tell you the power of our home group. I tell you the power, I'm not here to give you any kind of magical message about my home group, but when I get to my home group, you better guess, you better bet your bottom dollar that I'm going to remember the hand that Brad took to me. I'm going to remember the home that Susan gave to us. I'm going to remember George and how I couldn't get him off my leg like a horny dog. <laughs> From what I understand, that commitment's going to be taken over. <laughs> and, but, you know, but I'm going to remember things like that. Because I never want to get to the point where I'm satisfied with what I do in AA. I hope I'm always hungry to do a little more. And I'm going to remember the actions that were taken this weekend and how people extended themselves and what they did to make me comfortable. You see what I'm saying? Because I'm 23 years sober doesn't mean that's enough. Because I've been in a home group inactive, doesn't, the most dangerous place for a guy like me is to be self-satisfied. I've done my share, I've done enough, and put a cap on what I'm supposed to do here in AA. But you see, when I go back there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna maybe peel me and my buddies off that wall and maybe look for another couple strange guys out there, you see, cause I get complacent in my home group. I know what it's like to be in a home group like this. I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir here, you know. And I love my home group and I love Alcoholics Anonymous, you see. And I always want to remember that we're in the minority of a minority. We are enthusiastic people in AA. And if you're new, I know what kind of, I know what kind of head you got. I've got a type of head that just, it doesn't care how tired I am, but it always wants to chat. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the more tired I am, the more it wants to chat. You know what I mean? I'm going to lay my head down tonight around 2.30 or 3, and I'm going to be physically beat. And in about a half hour, I'm going to hear this. (laughs) Hey, Larry. (laughs) Let's chat. I don't want to small talk. I want to talk about when you were a kid and bring you right up to date. You know what I mean? (laughs) And the only frustrating thing about that is we just did that the night before, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I know what it's like to be in a home group like this, you know. And, and, and I tell you, the sad part about AA and what makes this group so vital is that more and more, the newcomer alone's got a head that's telling him he don't want to be here, you know what I mean? And yet there's people in AA telling him that he don't need to be there either. You see? We're our own enemies sometimes. I mean, how often do you hear these people in meetings? That, oh, Jesus Christ, you don't need to do that. Come on, man. What are you, some kind of fanatic? You know what I mean? <laughs> Jesus, man, take it easy. I go to one meeting a month and I'm all right. You know what I mean? Well, sure, you've been making love to a gun for three years. You know what I mean? But You know? And so I... I I'm the type of guy who needs the intense, enthusiastic, uh, therapy of a, of, of a, of an active group. I need that. You see, I live happily today in Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm in my rut. And if you knew, I pray that you'd find a rut. And I know that sounds lame and it sounds goofy, but I've got a regular schedule of meetings. And I've got a regular, uh, series of phone calls that I make. And I've got regular things that I do in Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm a nut. And I know what it's like in between meetings. I know how hard it is to try to take these principles out there. And sometimes it feels like you're a ship going out to sea. And you go out there, and you try to do your day's work, and you try to be with people. And after about four hours out there at sea, you know, i got to find me another port. You know what I mean? And it's so good to know where you're supposed to be on Monday. It's so good to know where you're supposed to be on Wednesday. It's so good to know you got a sponsorship meeting on Thursday because that's my sense of security. I don't get security by, you know... Thinking my way through the day, you know, I I mean and that's exactly what happened to me if you're new I stopped drinking and I took up thinking you know what I mean. Oh, I'd love to think I got to think things through, you know Yeah My plump, you know my boss gave me an email about a week ago and it says I want you to start getting a little close to starting at 830
0: 830 8.30.
1: 8.30. What does he mean by that? 8.30? What's 8.30? He told me I had 150 accounts to see in a month, and he doesn't care how I see them. Eight a day or two. Now he wants me to... Be 8.30. Start at 8.30. And I had to think about that. 8.30, 8.30, 8.30. <laughs> Got to start at 8.30, you know. And just drove me nuts, you know what I mean? I had to talk about it. Had to share about it, you know what I mean? 8.30. He wants to start at 8.30. Just bothered the shit out of me, you know what I mean? I forgot that he's the boss, you know what I mean? He, had to think about it. Had to think it through, you know. And uh, and uh, so I'm starting about quarter to nine. I'm all right with that, you
0: know. <laughs>
1: but uh but I you know uh and, and, and coming to a home group like this, God I remember coming to my home group and, and I'm not gonna spend too much more time on this, but uh but uh I was uh I was intimidated by all the guys hanging around my sponsor. God I came to that group, you know, had my little clothes from Goodwill on and stuff like that, you know, and had my my house key and it was on a paper clip. <laughs> you know what I mean? And <laughs> And all these guys are hanging around my sponsor, and they got glasses, and they got ties, and, you know, they're all sharp. Who are these guys, man, you know? You know, they all work at a funeral parlor or something
0: like that, you know?
1: So I landed a job, and I'm a janitor at Montgomery Wards. I'm moving along, you know, and uh, first thing I did, man, is I, you know, I, I... you know, broke out my vision plan. And I went, you know, I need some glasses, you know. Got to have, well, your vision's fine. No, no, I need some goddamn glasses. I got a a home group and they wear glasses and ties and I need some damn glasses, you know. And it used to bother me because all these guys around my sponsor, I know he loved them better. I used to watch them just, you son of a, look at them. You know what I mean? Just used to, and, and you know, Johnny would go away for the weekend, you know, and I'd call these guys up. Hey, Ray, how come Johnny likes you better? And he's, Jesus, Larry, come on, man. He don't like you better. Don't you know that I've been around here longer? You know, don't you know that you're just a new guy on the block and after a while your sponsor will get to know you and you guys will get along? He says, no, that's not the way it is at all. And he says, besides, Larry, he says, you don't want to be friends with your sponsor. You know, and he told me some of the most vital information I got. Ray and Mac, they told me this very special thing that, you know what, quit trying to seek your sponsor's approval. You're such a people pleaser that when you start trying to seek your sponsor's approval, that's dangerous for a new guy because you'll start holding back secrets because you want your nod of approval. Forget that, man. Your sponsor knows you're a goof, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? He says, just get some buddies and let Johnny have his old friends. And you, know, and, I, and, you know, and that's the way I was. I started hanging around some guys that I could talk to about my sponsor, you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you know what he told me today? Now, 24 years later, Johnny goes away for the weekend, and if I'm home, my phone rings. Larry, how come Johnny likes you better? You know? <laughs> I said, because you're a loser, you know I'm <laughs> sorry. I've always been a loser. I've been a loser my entire life, man. I, I, I've i always been a hostile little loser, and I've known it, and I've prided myself on being a loser, and I'm not going to do any better, you know, damn it, you know. Along with being an alcoholic, I've got a, a big belt of lazy ass that straps around here, you know what I mean? Where I'm not going to lift, I'm not going you know, to, you know, I'll be damned if I'm going to earn a living, you know what I mean? I've had my hand out my entire life, you know. I'm the type of guy who my entire life I've done average things expecting standing ovations. (laughs) I'm the type of guy that, you know, I go to work and I think the boss is up in the office going, Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Boy, he started at 8.30, you know, my God, you know. Boy, they don't make him like that anymore, you know. Oh, yeah. Always got to get a standing ovation for shit you're supposed to be doing anyway. You know what I mean? You know, my wife drove me nuts uh, not too long ago. I put a toilet seat on, you know, and we're busy in AA. She's a busy lady in AA. And we would come home from those meetings and I'd come home from the meetings and she'd come home and I'd be sitting in bed and she'd go to use the restroom, you know, and she'd be in there for a, you know, however long, you know, and I'm sitting there going, Jesus, come on, Rosie. My God, look around yourself, lady, you know. What are they teaching you at those stag meetings? Man, you're sitting on a brand-new maple toilet seat in there, you know. Get out of yourself, man, you know. Who do you think put that baby in there, God, you know? Hell no, it was Lawrence of Torrance that put that seat on there, man, you know. Drove me nuts for two months on every night, you know. Finally, I had to tell her. She goes, I know, and it's loose, too, you know. You can't win. You can't please these ladies for nothing, man. And I've tried hard to please her. I bust my buns trying to do things. It wasn't too long ago that it was a nice hot day and she had a dirty car out there, and I thought I'd wash the dirt off. And I'm washing it for a couple minutes and I'm about ready to to leave, and then the kitchen window slides open and she goes, hey, do you want some soap to wash the car? (laughs) Wash the car, I've already rinsed it off for you, you know, my God. Just a lazy little guy, you know, and and when you're a loser like me, it seems like people were always bringing people to my side to compare me to to try to help me out, you know what I mean? Hey, why don't you try to be like Bob? He seems to be doing pretty good, Larry, you know what I mean? And I remember being a freshman in high school, and I'm sitting in the principal's office for being, you know, for being drunk, and, you know, and and uh, me and my dad are in there, you know, and uh, my dad sees a star quarterback in the principal's office, you know, Number seven up there, you know. And my dad says, hey, why don't you try to be like Coy?" You know, and I look at him. I go, okay, you know, and that lasted for about a week, you know. And uh, next year, uh, they I got caught being drunk and loaded on barbiturates, and I took the janitor's cart, and I drove it through the library door. I had to get that book back, you know what I mean? <laughs> And so me and my dad and my probation officer are sitting in the principal's office, you know, and my probation officer says, you know, why don't you try to be like Coy? You know, I said, All right, you know, and next year my big sister starts dating some guy and she brings him over and it's old old number seven right there, you know, right on my couch, you know. My mom comes running over in her moo moo and why don't you try to be like Coy, goddammit? You know what I mean? <laughs> My senior year, I'm in the Torrance Jail getting ready to do 90 days, and somebody slides the newspaper in there, and it says, Coy makes all pro-CIF. Oh, Jesus, I'd like to be like Coy, you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, lo and behold, what goes around in old A&A town, I'm about five years sober. I'm in downtown Los Angeles. I'm in my plumbing truck. And it's vogue that in Los Angeles, on every street corner, there's some guy selling oranges or peanuts, or he has this cardboard sign that says, I'll work for food, like you don't. You know, I love LA. You know, and uh, and, uh, and and I'm the type of guy that looks like I need help. People are always giving me pamphlets telling me Jesus is coming and Jehovah, and you know, all these biblical people are coming to see me and stuff. You know, and I'm sitting in my in my van, and this guy's at the sign, and he locks eyes with me. I go, shit.
0: Yeah.
1: I got two bucks and he ain't getting it, you know, I'm a giver in AA, you know, and, uh, and sure enough, he, he lock, comes over to the van and he sticks his head in the van and he goes, Larry, Larry Thomas, I go, Coy, you know, I, my God, what happened, you know, I thought you had it made, and then I immediately thought that if there was any justice in AA, that maybe my sponsor could write this guy a letter and say, why can't you be like Larry, you know, Everybody's always looked like they've had it made. My entire life, man, everybody looked like they had some type of uh, secret plan, you know. And uh, I was born in Detroit, come out to California when I was about four years old. I've got a great mom. i got a little Scandinavian mom, and my mom loves speed. My mom loves diet pills. My mom was always buzzing around the house around four o'clock in the morning, sorting out nuts and bolts in the garage, you know. (laughs) Rake it in the neighbor's yard around five in the morning, you know. And uh, and just a busy lady. She had her, her favorite thing was to make Afghans. You know, she'd take those diet pills and make Afghans all night. Just, just, just putting them out, man, you know. Everything in the house had a fresh Afghan. My chairs had Afghans, couches had Afghans, my dad's golf clubs had little poodles covering, them, you know. Any animals they had a fresh vest on, you know, and and just a busy lady, you know, and and, and the diet was working. How she was down to a stick, you know, and was, and uh, just and I had booties and stuff that I didn't even wear, you know, and uh, she'd be buzzing around the house, and uh, and uh, she had a hobby. She had a couple of them, but if she ever get them down to two, you know, her favorite one was to get her prescription filled and make these big jigsaw puzzles, you know, these thirty million piece jigsaw puzzles, you know, of of the Mojave Desert, you know. And, uh, <laughs> She didn't want to be stuck with any color. It's going to be a, to be a beige night, you know what I mean? <laughs> and she'd go to Save-Ons and uh, get her a carton of Raleigh cigarettes because they had coupons on the back, and she saved those coupons to buy more yarn. It was a hideous cycle she was caught up in.
0: <laughs> one
1: that I know you know about, you know. And, uh, and she'd come home and uh, put on her only moo-moo. She had one moo-moo her entire life, you know. <laughs> And, uh, and she'd plop open that card table, take a couple more dexies, start putting together this puzzle. And she had a big pair of toenail clippers, cause if she had a piece that didn't fit, well she'd snip that son of a, you know. <laughs> we got a job to do, you know.
0: <laughs> I,
1: I, um. Uh, I found out at an early age that my dear mother loved me. And I would do to that lady, What I would do to anybody who would ever show me any ounce of affection or attention. And I'd play her like a fiddle. I don't ever want to forget what it's like. To be coming out of nowhere and show up at your mom's doorstep or she was a hard working lady, still is, and she used to work at this dry cleaners, you know. And she hadn't seen me for a while and I'm standing in this parking lot from about here to those guys in the back row there. And I lock eyes with her and I've got my street mud on and she's working in this dry cleaners and the only thought that I have is she better have a dollar and I waddle up to her and I asked her for that dollar and her little hands start shaking and she starts going through this little plastic purse that she got at Woolworths and in that purse I see a little picture of me when I'm eight years old on a little league that's the only picture she had of me and she shakes her little hands and she pulls out a little dollar maybe two dollars and she shakes it and gives it to me now I probably walked about maybe what 40 Fifty feet? How come when I'm in in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, if there's a secretary that same distance, why can't I ask him for a commitment and walk that same distance? Why can't I do that? Why is it easier for me to walk that distance and use my mom one more time, you see? And that's the kind of selfish and self-centeredness that this program has to be applied to my life to get rid of. Because if my alcoholism don't kill me, my selfishness and my self-centeredness will. Bottom line, it is rooted in everything I ever do and think about. It's all about me. You know, My dad was a happy drunk. My dad was a happy, singin' the blues, Nat King Cole, Bobby Darin drunk. He was a refinery worker and he was always sneaking into his own damn house. It was an amazing thing. <laughs> he had a nickname for me and pardon my French, it was son of a bitch. Where is that son of a bitch? Have you seen that son of a bitch? You know what I mean? And, and being a refinery worker, he's always coming in at different hours and he's coming through my bedroom window. You know? <laughs> Yeah, he's a window climber, and I can tell because I can feel that big boot coming down on my chest, you know. And 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 I remember grabbing it one night. He's sneaking in there, and I said, I said, Dad, I said, why don't you get, you know, why don't you have Mom make you a key, you know? My God, she's up anyway, you know. I mean, I, you know? I can hear the Hoover going now, for Christ's sake, you know. But I tell you what, man, my dad made drinking look good. He made sobriety look grim, you know, but he made drinking look good, you know, and and he was always there to help me. My dad's the kind of guy that everything he touches turned to gold, and he wasn't a quitter. He hung in. He started something, and no matter how hard it was, he finished it. Me, on the other hand, I've always had the feeling, I've always had this feeling in me that I want to leave. No matter what I'm doing and where I'm going, I've always had this feeling that i got to leave. I've gotta leave. I've gotta leave. You know, I don't care what it is. I've always had this tendency. I've gotta leave. I don't know how to work through things. You see, I don't know how to stay put and weather the storm and stuff like that. You know? And, uh, and my dad's one of those guys. He, you know, he, uh, he started this job at a, at a chemical plant, you know, as a, as a maintenance janitor. And 30 years later, he's the plant manager of that same chemical company and working for Oshaw and stuff like that. And he met my mom when he was 16. She was in a convent, and they had a dream. And that dream was to get her out of that convent, you know, <laughs> and do what everybody was doing back then. They were, they were going to, to World War II, and then afterwards they were moving to California to live their dream. And that was their dream. You know, and I became the nightmare of that dream. But that guy had a work ethic. That guy knew how to hang in. You know what I mean? And I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted so much to be like my dad. You know, and my dad used to tell me stuff like, you don't know how good you got it, kid. Back when I was your age, we really had it tough. And he did have it tough. My God, his father choked on his tongue and died when he was a young man. His mother hung herself in a Detroit jail when he was 13. He brought up his kid brother doing side work. And his dream was to go into the Navy and stuff like that, you know. He had to dream to keep out of the reality of his own life, you know. And... uh and uh, and I wanted to be like my dad, but I didn't have that stick-to-itiveness. And I had this idea that I couldn't ask him for help because I thought the idea of a man – my dad seemed to be able to work things out without asking for help. And I wanted to be like – I wanted to be so much like him that I didn't want to be taught how to be like that. And I was so ashamed that I wasn't like that automatically. You know, I was so ashamed that I couldn't ask him how to do homework and stuff like that because I wanted to figure myself, stuff out myself and, and be like that, you know. And around 11 years old, sobriety stopped working. <laughs> you know, I had about enough of that, you know. I'm feeling a little pressure here, you know, and, uh, and there was four of us in a garage and we started passing around a bottle of four rose whiskey. And for the first time in my life, I didn't want to leave. I wanted to stay, you know. <laughs> and I, for the first time in my life, I wasn't restless, irritable, or discontented. And for maybe for a half hour, everything was all right right there. I felt like a player. It was the most normal feeling I've ever gotten in my entire life. My entire life, I've been obsessed with one of these days. I'm gonna. It wasn't about being a carpenter. It wasn't one of these days I'm going to be a plumber. My entire life, my secret dream up to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, and even afterwards a little, was one of these days, I'm going to think and feel and be normal. Because there's a part of me that isn't. And I've spent my entire life with this one dream that if I could start living normally, everything would be all right. And isn't that the masquerade of Alcoholics Anonymous? Isn't that the killer in AA where new people come to these rooms and to the untrained eye, they see they get their little job back, they get about four months of sobriety, they get a little girl to go to the dance with, they get a little car, and to the untrained eye, it looks like normal living is a treatment for alcoholism. And nothing could be so further from the truth. Normal living is not the treatment for alcoholism. You do not treat a spiritual disease with normal living. That just comes from hard work and good fortune. But what happens to people like me is they come here and they get these things and they start sitting in these meetings and they become a little restless and irritable and discontented and all their material needs are met and they're wondering why they're feeling so out of sorts and they're not a part of because they haven't treated their alcoholism. And so they think, well, maybe they need to work a little harder. Maybe I need to spend more time at home. And they start trying to work more hard at getting their life in order than treating their disease of alcoholism. And the treatment for my disease isn't about going out and spending 12 hours at work all the time. The treatment for my disease is eye-to-eye with another man in Alcoholics Anonymous, carrying this message and putting that book to my life. I need a spiritual answer for this spiritual disease. I don't need more overtime and a degree. Those are good to get, but that don't take away and treat my alcoholism. And I've been obsessed with doing that my entire I thought for sure that was going to be the answer. If I get my life in order, I won't have to drink and my depressions won't be so bad when I'm sober. And I would stop drinking and I'd get these little goofy jobs. And my whole fifth step is a series of fresh starts. Starting over. Starting over. Because that's the only way a loser like me gets faith. He doesn't get faith by hanging in there like we do in AA. A loser like me gets gets faith by starting over. That's the only way I get hope. A new little town, new PO, you
0: know.
1: <laughs> you know, new little job, and yep, this time it'll be good, and everything's good for about three weeks, you know. And then I'm stuck with the hideous four horsemen, and the longer I stay sober, the worse I get, you know, and I can't stand the way I feel, you know, when I'm sober. But anyway, I take my first drink of alcohol when I'm 11 years old. I don't head out to Skid Row that next day, but I, I did get the address, you know. And, uh, and it was and it was it was easy to find it was all around the house it was it, it wasn't you know and i started sneaking it to school and stuff like that i remember my first project in, in Woodshop. wood the, co- the the teacher wanted us to build a, either a coffee table or something you know for our families and so uh, so i built i built a bar you know <laughs> but it only fit one guy <laughs> it was like yeah it was like a little cockpit it was great <laughs> my freshman year i started hanging around these uh these guys i started dating this little mexican girl and uh, and her brothers uh they like cars they like lowered cars <laughs> they like car shows they like uh they like uh you know drinking cheap wine and driving around and getting my head my hair real big like a Bakersfield tumbleweed and we'd lower our Chevrolets down to the ground and we'd, we'd bounce around and listen to the Four Tops and the Temptations and the OJs and Marvin Gaye and God I loved it man I, I was in my plumbing truck not too long ago the Four Tops came on I just started sinking in my damn truck I loved it man I had a little Mexican girlfriend named Loopy, and she got her hair up real big and I'd get my hair up real big I had these white t-shirts with black khaki pants that came up to here <laughs> Somebody told me that men who are well-endowed had big feet, so I had a pair of 15-inch shoes, you know. (laughs) I'm driving around with big hair and big feet and big ideas, man, you know. (laughs) I loved it, man. I loved it. Everything I needed, I'd find in that car, man. We'd drive around with our frowns on our face because our asses hurt from driving around all night, you know. You take that driver education class in, in, in high school, and you're always driving with the biggest coach in the world, you know, this guy's huge, and I'm always taking summer school because I'm getting kicked out of regular school, so I sign up for driver's education. Get in the car, Thomas. Well, I get my hair into the car, you know, and <laughs> there's these two girls in the back seat, and he says, all right, pull over there and parallel park, so I parallel park, you know, and all that stuff. He says, well, you're doing a good job. He says, why don't you drive up to Torrance Boulevard? I want to buy everybody some Pepsi. And what a cool coach. I drive up there, you know, and. Hand signals and stuff like that, and get into the Jack in the Box, you know. And 15 minutes before class, I I totally forgot that 15 minutes. I, you know, I took four what they call, you know, two and alls. And I've been, I've been a good kid, just drinking cheap wine and doing heroin. And some guy gave me, (laughs) gave me four, and I didn't know what they were, so I just took them all, you know. I didn't didn't want to get caught with anything, you know. And uh, and I didn't know what they were. They, they were some type of barbiturate you know. And and uh, they're half second all, half am. You're knocked out. Telling the truth is what you're doing you're just, every Al-Anon's dream you know and uh, who's loopy I have no idea you know and, and anyway and I take four of those things I totally forgot and so I'm driving up to the jack of the box and these things boom they start oh man they all come on at once I look over there and now there's four coaches you know they're all huge you know and I can't talk you know and he says what's wrong with you he says drive up and talk to the puppet you know well I, well, I can't see the puppet man i you know? I can hear the puppet, you know, can I have your, he's getting mad at me, pull up so I can have your order, please, little pissy guy, you know, I, I want to drive over there just to run him over, you know, and I, so I pull her over, the, and I hear this big crash, and I, I run over the jack-of-the-box head, you know, and he's still yelling at me, you know, can I have your order, the, the cops come, they throw me on the hood of the car, they shatter my hair all over the place, you know, I don't drive till I'm 30, well, big deal, you know, I'll, I'll ride shotgun, you know, I'll over there and drink wine and make that magnificent connection of me and me in that rear view mirror there's nothing like an alky making himself more beautiful in that mirror and all he has to do is take a drink and every drink his eyes get bluer his hair gets bigger and he goes Jesus Christ are you good looking you know what are you doing hanging around these Mexicans you ought to be an underwear model for Christ's sake you know you don't wear any but what the hell you know my God you know (laughs) <laughs> and I ran into a kid like that not too long ago, man, several years ago. I'm up there at the Glendale Mall, and I'm walking down this mall. This kid walks by me. He's all shaved like a, like some of us, you know. And <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, you know. <laughs> But, he, but he's 18, you know, and he's shaved, he's all tatted down, and he's got a tank top on, he's got these big pair of pants, you could put about five guys in there, you know. He's got three beepers because he's an important kid, you know. And I walk by him and he's got his mom's earrings on, he's got a ring in here, he's got a diamond in there, he's got a ring in his lip, he's got a chain to his wallet, he's got a ball bearing in his tongue. I walk by him and he goes, what are you looking at? Whoa! I, said, I don't got a goddamn clue what I'm looking at, you know beats the hell out of me what I'm looking at, pal, you know, and uh you know, now I sponsor the kid down in Chula Vista. What do you want me to do? I says, well, why don't you unlock yourself for Christ's sake, you know, yeah, yeah, you say that, but I go to your meetings and I feel so different. I says, no kidding, you know. <laughs> Could it be the chain-link fence you're wearing, you know? Does that have anything to do with it, you know? But I understand what that's about. That ain't about being bad or being mean or macho. That's about being afraid. And if there's anything that encapsules the alcoholic's emotions, it's being afraid. We know how to be afraid better than anybody I know. But you cannot tell us, man. Alcoholics are the only ones who can be just surrounded with fear. And you'll be looking them in the eye and talking, they don't hear a word you're saying. You know? They are just so preoccupied with so many things. And, and I had so many things to masquerade. So many images to hide behind. Always had a little image to hide behind and keep people out. And then when all your images are over with, you have your ace in the hole. And to a lot of us, that's our violence. That'll keep them at arm's distance. You know what I mean? And then, and the you mm mm-hmm, you know? <laughs> right on, right on. Mm-hmm. 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 We're going to be saving your ass. Mm-hmm. Come on right up here now. We're going to save you. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but anything's and that's exactly what that's exactly what drinking did to me, man. Drinking dressed me up without even leaving the house, man. You know, two shots of bourbon and I'm. I don't know what I am, but I ain't me and I'm all for that. Which was so neat about going to that bar. I love to go to those bars because after two or three drinks, you know you're gonna be somebody. You know? It ain't gonna be you. Maybe you'll be that astronaut. Maybe you'll be some kind of skin diver or something like that. But you're not gonna be you. And you can run those lies and you can run to somebody who's lying to you. You know what I mean? And uh and that's and that's what that's the relief I got from alcoholism, man, is it it, it made it bearable being me. Because I couldn't stand being me when I was sober because I knew what I was when I was sober. I was a weak, good-for-nothing, yellow coward guy who didn't know how to get out of being that, who was secretly stuck being that, and I knew I would always be like that and spent my waking hours wondering, should I end it today by jumping in front of the bus? You know, what can I, you know, I mean, you know, thank God. Thank God that there was alcohol because I tell you, a shot of alcohol, I didn't know about a phenomenon of craving. I thought that was because it was an empty stomach or or cheap whiskey. I didn't know about that, that after two drinks I'm off and running, you know, waking up and having these kids walk by me and the teacher saying, step around the man, you know, looking up at the little kids' eyes in those park and they're snickering at me and stuff like that, you know. I didn't want that to happen. All I wanted was take the heat off that first couple drinks. But I take that drink and I'm off and running. And sometimes I try to control that. Sometimes I know what's going to happen, so I try to watch it like a hawk. You know, I'll take that. Now now remember, man, remember how you're going to get. Keep an eye on this stuff, you know. You're going to be off and running, you know. And sometimes I just drink just to keep that spot, just to keep that happy spot. Because there's a spot there where the alky gets, where it's as pretty as those glaciers, baby. There is the spot that I love to get. And the only place I get there is but two, three shots of bourbon. And it's the safest place I know. And my head shuts off and my guts unwind and it's okay being me, baby. We're safe right here. We are safe right here. It's going to be all right, man. It is a, it is bliss to the alcoholic. You know, I didn't know other people didn't feel that way. I didn't know I, I really could care less. All I know is I did. You know, and I was, I was gunning for it every time, man. Now I didn't head out the skid row or nothing like that. And, uh, and I stayed in high school, almost graduated in 1969. Everybody's going different places and some of them are going to Maui. Some of them are going to San Francisco. And I thought me and my buddy could find my roots and go to Detroit. We wound up in Phoenix and uh, we're over there off of North Central and, and and Roosevelt at the Apache Hotel, you know, and uh, and the Apache Hotel is about $40 a month, you know, and and, uh, and everybody's got a TV and it's in the lobby, you know. Everybody's got a bathroom and it's down the hall, you know, and you're living in a little room with a Murphy bed and a hot plate and a hot TV and you're looking out your little window and you're drinking and you're dreaming and you're dying. And, you know, in one of these days it ain't going to be like this. It ain't going to be like this, Larry. One of these days, man, things are going to be all right. You just got to get your little life in order here. And you get your little job with a plumber, you know, and I get this job as a plumber, and I'm underneath the house. My first job is a plumber's helper, and he puts me underneath this house, you know, and and I'm underneath this house, and and I got a pint of Kessler's. I got a transistor radio and there's this cat staring at me. I never had a cat, you know, he's just looking at me like that, you know. And I crawl over to the vent, you know, and I look out that vent and I look see the traffic going by and I go, Man, I'm on top of the world. I got a maid under here, you know. Nobody knows I'm under here. I'm getting paid by the hour. I got a pint of Kessler. I got a cat, you know. You know, every now and then banging on the pipe, you know. Hours later, they're dragging me out of the house, you know. I mean, it seemed like I I blacked out and and I started going wild under there and I popped up through the bedroom door, you know, like a creature from the Black Lagoon, you know. (laughs) Go through the ladies' bedrooms, go steal all of her jewelry and underwear, take it back underneath the house, you know. Dress up the cat a little bit, you know. (laughs) Well, I got fired from that. And... uh, So in a couple of days I became a, a tuxedo salesman, door to door, you know, in, in the middle of June, you know. Hey, look at this honey, you know, and did that for about half a day and, uh, anyway I started working for this other guy and, uh, I worked for him about a half a day and, and I found out that he was younger than me so I faked a knee injury and I, and, you know, and, Long story short is, uh, me and my buddies started drinking and started writing and selling prescriptions, and we started doing that. And after about nine months, they caught up with me and put me in a little place in southern Arizona. You know, now when you're on barbiturates and whiskey, there's no freeway chase. You know, it's not there. He goes down the 210 freeway, none of that's happening. It's just a matter of the sheriff coming into the Busy Bee Hotel, going, there he is under here. You know what I mean? You know, always naked. Leave it to that alky. You know. Yeah, he's over there in a boiler room. He's butt naked. You know what I mean? Yeah, we caught him. at the Motel 6. He's butt naked. You know? Never fails. It's that one with God. You know? And it just always got to be out there like that. You know? What about a couple years ago, I was at this conference in Bakersfield, and we shared this Sheraton Hotel with 2,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. There's nothing wrong with that. I I just had this goofy idea that around four o'clock in the morning, I wanted to grab a grapevine and go door to door. (laughs) You know, Bill and Bob love you, you know. (laughs) Just to see how many of them would open up the door butt naked, you know. Get out of here, you know. So anyway, uh I got to wrap this up. I uh I spent a little bit down there in Arizona. They gave me a $45 voucher to come back to the LA City Hall. I take a Continental Trailways. I, I register at the LA County Jail and LA City Hall and I get me a little room in downtown Torrance and in 1974, I'm two months uh two months sober on Anabuse and they take me off Anabuse. And after about three more weeks, uh, they find me in a little league dugout in 1974, totally sober, in between hysterical and maniacal. No anti nothing, totally sober, absolute out of my mind, and I'd never been in that place before, and I thought that was the deep end. I went, I, I, I went, I went into a place that I hope I never go to. But I started visiting more and more the longer I stayed sober. And they sent me to the Harbor General Hospital. They diagnosed some of my drug overdoses of being suicide attempts. And that by the look of my jacket, that maybe I need to go to a state hospital and be observed for 30 days. And they sent me to a state hospital out there by Oxnard. And after about a year, they, I was totally observed. <laughs> and they released me with my antidepressants and my antipsychotics. And they told me that I wouldn't be able to operate in society unless I took those things. And they were absolutely right. Because after two months I was out of there, I ran out of Thorazine and they found me at of Street in downtown Los Angeles behind the Chevron station. A public drunk, a public nuisance. No big time convict here. You got an all time loser though. That's what you got here. I had no idea how to live. And they sent me to the county jail again, and I'm up there, and after about 40 days, they put about 50 of us in a black and white bus, and they sent us down to the South Bay Courthouse, where I'm going to be tried and convicted. And after about uh, eight hours, I'm in a holding tank about this size, it's just me and bologna sandwiches, and I'm the only one in there, and I'm on a concrete floor with my Vons bag and no hope, I'm going I wonder where they're going to send me now. And at 4 o'clock in an afternoon, a Scottish man opened up a jail door, and he slid this jailhouse door open. And he said, Are you Larry Thomas? And I said, Yes, sir, I am. He says, Why don't you come with me, son? You're going to AA. AA? Those are two initials I've never heard of before. I've heard of OR and PO, but what's AA, you know? (laughs) And who's this Scottish pirate all of a sudden, you know? (laughs) I lad, you know? (laughs) And Now, the neat thing about that guy is that he had no business being there. He had no business being there. He didn't have a panel. He wasn't a part of the court. He wasn't a part of the probation department. He wasn't a part of anything. He was a refinery worker. And he got the worst news of his life, and that is his wife was dying immediately of a terminal disease. And he knew she was in good hands, but he knew he wasn't. But somewhere in his book, Alcoholics Anonymous, Somewhere in that book, Alcoholics Anonymous, he grasped and developed a manner of living that he knew exactly what was supposed to happen when he got like that. Somewhere in that paragraph, working with others, his practical experience tells us nothing will ensure us from immunity from drinking than intensive work with other alcoholics. This works when all other activities fail. And he grabbed that and he ran with it. And he went down to that courthouse for no business at all. And he asked the judge if there was anybody who may wanted to go to AA. And he talked to Judge Foy and Judge Hollingsworth. And he says, we got a guy in the holding tank that may be interested. And he came down there and he took him to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. A trusted servant isn't somebody who's so much elected to or nominated to. A trusted servant is what you are if you're new, what we automatically give you your first day here and what some of these people in this room are so eloquently. We are trusted servants, and we're trusting you that you're going to take this message and you're going to perpetuate this gift for free, for fun and for free, and secretly treat your own disease while doing it. And that's what that man was doing. it. He was a trusted servant, man, and he carried you so well. And I, I... went with that guy and I, I thought, you know, well, I'm going for a long ride up north and maybe some lunch, and that guy took me to a 15-minute car ride to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. In 1975, he rolled up to this Alano club in Torrance and he w- introduced me to this lady named Indian Genie and Captain Bob and Tennessee Bill and Singin' Sam and Serenity Sam and Bicycle Ray and Santa Claus Ray and Whistlin' Pete and Dancing Butt and all these other people, met. man. You know? I, I said, my God, I just left a group of people like this, you know. Little Moose come running after me like a toilet paper come Hi honey, my name is Moose and I'm expecting a miracle and I said, My God, I bet you are, you know. I'm not it, you know. And and then this transvestite came through the card card playing room and he started circling me like a helicopter, you know. And after about three times around he landed and he says, I can't wait to take you to a candlelight meeting. I said I said, Well, not till I get a year anyway, you know. And then I I said, my God, that guy's got big feet, you know. (laughs) Huge. (laughs) And I said, my God, if that's AA, I don't want any part of it, you know. And then from 1975 to 1982, I came in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous on a regular basis. 30 days and get drunk, 60 days and get drunk, 90 days and get drunk. And the longest I could stay sober was six months because I was on heroin. And never once did I apply this book to my life. Never once did I get a spot. never once did I find out what alcoholism was. All I did was come here, try to get my life in order, and think that if anything goes bad and I feel like drinking, I'll know what to do. Because in the back of my mind, I'll know what to do when I need to drink. In the back of my mind, Jesus Christ, you know what's in front of that? It certainly isn't going to AA. And I was sitting in these meetings, and I'd get physically sober and mentally ill. And when it came time to drink, and, and life would give me a little chunk that I couldn't swallow, there was nothing keeping me from drinking because I'm thinking, you know what, I've got that cancer now that I know that if I go drink, I can come back. Because I have did it once, I can do it again. The hideous cancer of AA. To that slipper. I've done it before. You see, if you don't do anything for your sobriety, If you don't start doing little commitments and doing little, doing the uncomfortable to get comfortable, when it comes time for you to be in those moments, you don't got nothing to lose. If you've done nothing around here, you don't got nothing to lose. But if you've done a little work around here and you've done a little inventory and you've had some commitments, you think twice about stuff like that because you know dang well there's nothing neat about being new. There's nothing pretty about being new. I hope I I I got a ton of drunks left in me. I don't ever want to be new. And I will go to Anchorage not to be new. (laughs) I'm 23 years sober and it ain't enough. And that little fellow with the patch on, his sponsor is over in Oregon. Once had 46 years. He's now got a couple months. And Alex asked him. My God, what happened to you? You had 46 years. He says, yeah, I had a lot of years, but I didn't have any days. It's the days that get you the years, pal. It's the days. Every day we got a daily reprieve. We hear people every time they take their cakes, they're talking about their blessing. I've been blessed with this and I've been blessed with this. And then we watch them slowly hang themselves with their great blessings because they become so involved with their blessings in the place that blessed them when no one else will. This is my great blessing. Nothing happens without you. If I'm lying to my sponsor, this whole thing's a sham. This whole thing's a bunch of... If I'm lying to my sponsor and I'm holding back little nickel and dime things and I'm and I'm running my old... This whole thing's a lie. And I don't ever want to live like that when every waking moment is a lie. Every corner of my room is a lie. Every place I look is a lie. And when I'm honest with my sponsor and I'm honest with my fellas... Everything is clean and as pure as it should be. And there's no running and hiding. And an alcoholic can live peacefully like that. He doesn't have that turmoil anymore. He doesn't have the hideous four horsemen waiting at his footsteps when he's sober. That's what we feel when we're sober. Alcoholism strikes the alcoholic when he's not drinking. It waits for people to lay back on their commitment. It waits for you to say, no, I'm not going to go tonight. I don't need to be there. I'm going to go get pizza. You know, it waits for you to get your priorities all out of whack, you know. And on May 2nd, in 1980, I'm going by the Woolworth window, and, I, and I've and i got my mud on, and I'm getting ready to check myself into a mission. I'm 120 pounds, and I'm yellow. And i got my old little clothes on. i got a half pint of whiskey in my back pocket, and I look at myself, and I'm about 120. I said, whatever happened to my dreams? All I ever wanted to be was a cameraman. How come I'm always getting drunk and I'm always getting sober? What's wrong? And I did what I always do when I got like that. I panhandled some money and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a hold of my first sponsor, Don, who had always 12-stepped me. And I picked up that phone and I said, Don, I'm down here at the mission. Will you come, come and get me? And he says, the most profound thing I've ever heard in my life? He said, no. He says, you know where we are. You know what we got. You want to get sober? Why don't you get your rusty ass down here yourself? I'm tired of chasing after you. And he hung up. My God, whatever happened to that AA love, you know? (laughs) I just heard it. (laughs) And for the first time in my life, it wasn't necessary for the good people in AA to come and get me. The best thing that ever happened to me is people stopped rescuing me. The best thing that ever happened to me, that nobody was there to come get me anymore. I'd been toting around this cigar box with three, 30, 40, 50 names of people in AA, and I couldn't call one of them. They had all been tapped before. And I took the longest walk of my life. I walked that 10 miles from that mission to that little Alano club. And I walked down there with my little poopy pants and no hope. And I waddled in there and I said, Don, I don't know what to do with my life. Story of my life. I don't know what to do with my life. And I said, would you be my sponsor? I never asked that man to be my sponsor. I said, would you be my sponsor? And that guy lit up like a chandelier for about five seconds. And then he lit into me for about 20 minutes. <laughs> And he gave me the wood, man. And I tell you what, I tell you what, though. I just made contact with a higher power, baby. I just made contact with the most beautiful thing that I've ever experienced. And that is another man in AA telling me, I know how you feel, pal. I know exactly how you feel. The most vital relationship we have. Watch them. Watch these people with their sponsors. There's nothing like it. There is nothing like a guy and his sponsor, man. It's the most blessed relationship I've ever experienced. And to watch you guys with your sponsors and these gals with, it is a joy to see. Because there's life in those four eyes, man. Yours and his. There's something going on there that's never happened before. And I don't want to jeopardize that. So I tell my sponsor my little goofy secrets. And I tell him those things, you know? And he tells me, yep, this is what we're going to do, kid. This is what we're going to do. You know? And the, and the biggest, and the biggest difference When I went to that mission, was I finally found out that I'm an alcoholic. And all my life, I thought, well, I'm an alcoholic, I can't drink. I'm an alcoholic, I shouldn't drink. And what I found out was that I'm an alcoholic, and I'm going to drink. I'm going to drink. If I don't do what this guy tells me to do, I'm going to drink. I'll never get so sober that I can't drink again. But I can always get so drunk that I can't make it again. And Alcoholics Anonymous is a place where we show up, and we grow up, and we give up. And you do the most magical thing. You take people who are lost and lonely and you're afraid and you dress us up and you do the hardest thing ever been done. You teach us how to grow up here. And we grow up shoulder to shoulder here, hand to hand, one alcoholic talking to another, trying to keep that level of identification open in our meetings. That's the neat thing about home groups is recreating that atmosphere where your spirit finally got that spark. And it's my job as a sponsor is to light that spark, but not only to light it, but to make sure that I take them to a group that fans his fire. <laughs> you see? who takes that fire and fans it, man, because other people are doing it. There's so many groups that are spitting on that fire. There's so many things going on at meetings. that are trying to put that fire out. And you bring them up here to Anchorage, and you put them in the middle of these meetings, and that flame is fanned by you guys. And if I can do anything to get a spark going in another guy, that's all I want to do is to perpetuate this gift. If I've been given this, I owe you guys one more life and then one more. I don't think Bill and Bob started this thing for me to stay home and work on my car. I don't think that's what they had in mind. I think what they had in mind is exactly what we're taught here in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and perpetuate this magical gift because Alcoholics Anonymous is the only one that can take care of Alcoholics Anonymous. There ain't nobody tied into this thing but me and you, baby. And we've got it made here. We have got the life. If you're new, I hope you're so desperate that you do things that you don't know. I My beautiful wife, I've got to tell you how I met this beautiful wife, and I'm shutting it down. My beautiful wife is 13 years sober. I met this little lady about how many years? Seven, eight years ago at a meeting in Downey. And I'm talking at a meeting in Downey, and I couldn't get my eyes off this little Nicaraguan. And after, <laughs> and after the meeting, I had to talk to her, you know, first to see if she liked my talk. And then and, and then, just get her phone number. I just couldn't get. And we started talking. And at the end of the meeting, she says, do you like the backpack in camp? I says, I love it. And I never backpacked in my life, man. I, I spent enough time out there, you know, but I figured anything to get into the tent, you know. And I've been calling that lady every day since. And the most beautiful experience that I had was not only taking her hand in marriage, but being loyal to her and knowing perfectly well that she loves me and that I don't have to do anything anymore to make her love me anymore. That she loves me because she don't need me for nothing. She's a woman, an alcoholic. She's self-supporting through her own contribution. She doesn't need me to lean on. She's been doing good without me. And she still hangs around me because she loves me. And it's my privilege to take care of that love. There's nothing like sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where a man is sitting with his sponsor and he's listening to his future girlfriend or wife up there at the podium. And she's talking about how much she drank and how much she used and how much she whored around and what she did. And, and that sponsor's nudging you, going, Boy, he's a hell of a gal. You know? <laughs> I tell you, I, I've got a beautiful life here today. I've got a great life because of people in Alcoholics Anonymous and because of folks like you. You took a nothing and made him into an almost. I love my life today because of you, you know. And, and there's this little story about this little fella who watched this man in a lighthouse. Day after day, week after week, this little boy used to watch this old man in a lighthouse and he lived by himself. And this watched and he couldn't figure out what that, what that old man was doing in there. One day that little boy of about seven years old came over to that old man and they talked over the fence and he said, mister, mister, he says, you gotta be lonely in there. And that old man reached down to that little boy and he says, son, not since I've saved my first life. When I first took a look at you, I thought, my God, how boring and lonely this thing must be. But when I started sponsoring people and I started bringing life to the dead, and I started taking these guys to the Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started watching these little guys get friends. And I started watching these little lives get, be able to move back with their wives and get their lives in order. What a thing. I don't ever want to miss that. I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to miss that. You have brought so much meaning to my life that I can't wait to see you again. My heart skips knowing that I'm going to come see you again. You see, and I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for everything you folks have ever done for Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hope that I hope I can just give back a little bit of that. And Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast.
1: Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to
0: help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.